just want to extend another warm welcome and thank you to the the dudes, that's what they call themselves, um, for leading us in worship this morning. It is good to be um, back home, mostly. I mean, I'll be on. Thank you. I'll be honest. I I wish I could be experiencing our service from Alaska again this week. Um, it was. Just want to say it was an amazing experience. If you've ever had the chance to go, I encourage you to go. Um, but it was one of the most invigorating two weeks of my life to be up there in a house full of eight stinky men, boys, sleeping in a room with five of them where the object was to make sure you made it to sleep before the lumberjack who sawed logs all night long um, fell asleep and then you were kind of toast. Um, so that was my first week, and then my wife showed up, and life got much nicer and cleaner and um, all of that. So we just um, want to thank you for allowing us a little bit of time off and um, just share that it was refreshing for both of us. And when Walt asked me to preach this day when I had just gotten back, I told him, well, it's going to be filled with Alaska stories. Is that okay? And he said it was. So I've only got one fishing story for you today in the sermon, but we will talk about that later. Um, last week, Walt um, finished up Matthew chapter 9 and indicated that we were going to kind of put Matthew aside for the most part and spend a few weeks um, looking at a different kind of concept, a different series that is based on the statement, live like Jesus. It's on our wall and it is a statement that is becoming part of who we want to be in the community of Rockland, of who we want to be as spiritual leaders in this community, as spiritual influencers in this community. We want to live like Jesus, to be the hands, be the feet, be the face of Jesus, because he is, that is the job he has given us. That is the job that Jesus has given us when he could have done it way better and could send people who could do it way better than us from heaven to show the way to display Jesus, to be people who lead and connect and find ways to introduce Jesus to others. There were many other ways that Jesus could have got it done better than using us broken sinners. But as Everybody likes to say a Christian cliche. I like it. God doesn't. Oh, and then it just slipped my mind. Uh, doesn't uh, what it's about empowering and calling or something. Does God doesn't call the qualified? There we go. That's the word. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Did I say that right? Man, I should have practiced that one. That's what you get when you go off script. <clears throat> um, so living like Jesus is part of the Grace Point vision and our mission that we are trying to craft and, and form, especially as we move forward into this new, the new building process. Um, as you can see, stuff is happening on the building. Foundation rebar is being formed. And I just want to say, it's making it very difficult to accomplish work at church during the week. Because I just stand at the window like a little kid 
and I watch the men do their work, even if it's boring and just pulling wire out and tying rebar, I was fascinated and watching it. And I would go out and walk around because I want to know where every single pipe is, where every everything is under the ground so I can, you know, so I have that knowledge. And so I'm struggling um, watching the watching the guy who is digging uh, the trenches for the plumbing for our new bathrooms that will be over there. Um, watching him, the, maybe the most exciting thing was watching him drive the little track hoe thing um, over the trenches using the bucket to make sure he didn't fall in and was able to drive right over these trenches and stuff. And I was just like, that's the coolest thing ever. Um, so stuff is happening. But more than just building the building, like Jessica mentioned last week in her welcome, the building is not the church. We are the church, and we want to be a church that lives like Jesus. And that is a incredibly high calling. It's a high standard to hold ourselves to. Whenever we talk about high calling and high standards here at Grace Point, we always bring up the classic, and I wish I had the prop, but I don't. But I just remember, and I was like, we talk about Mickey's hand. Um... Mickey's hand. We've all been there to Disney, and man, I can remember those days. There's not a lot I remember about childhood, but man, do I remember going to, it wasn't Disney World, I went to Worlds of Fun in Kansas City, and I remember going and just hoping like I'll get out, that my shoes that I had wore that day were enough to lift me up so the top of my hair, I was born with hair um, and had hair throughout my childhood, um, that my hair that I had would maybe be puffy enough that I would reach the green line of permission to ride the crazy roller coaster rides. So Mickey's hand has a purpose, but at church, here at Grace Point, Mickey's hand does not belong. Mickey's hand belongs at Disney, not at church. There is not a certain requirement that you have to attain before you can come to Jesus. And we will talk more about that later. There is not something that you have to do before you are welcome in this building, a part of this church family. Mickey's hand is good for safety, keeping us, making sure that we fit within the restraints that will hold us in when the roller coaster goes upside down. Um, a couple months ago, I, again, I'm going off script. I have a picture, but I went off script, so I don't have it up. Um, I rode the scariest roller coaster of my life a, a couple months ago at a magic mountain down in Southern California. I think it's called the Tootsie or something like that. I don't know. Look it up. Yeah, they strap you in. You sit down. They strap you in. And then the crazy roller coaster seat turns vertical, so you are literally just hanging like you're Superman flying. I have never felt more appreciative and like I was putting my trust in crazy human engineering than I did on that ride. It was ridiculously insane and crazy to ride where it's not a seat holding you in and G-force. G-force is pulling you out and the only thing keeping you in is that little buckle. And you need to be a certain size to ride a ride like that. And it's good for that. But Mickey's hand is not good for salvation. We're going to talk more about that later. But I just wanted to remind us, as we talk about this concept of living like Jesus, whenever I, I hear that, it, it puts me in my place right away because I just think about the many ways that I fail at this each and every day. 
each interaction that I have, I come away saying, man, if I maybe had done this different or that different, I could have been more like Jesus. Each time something comes in my way that's a stumbling block, that's a temptation, I think, man, oh, I could have done better if I'd done this, and I just feel like I have failed. But Mickey's hand is not God's hand. God is not holding his hand up saying, when you get to this point, you can come be with me. God's hand is reaching down to where we are. The Bible says, while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ came down. While we were still sinners, Christ came down to rescue us and to be with us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And as you see it around, um, I mean, I noticed it most because if you want men to notice something, really read it, you slap it up in front of the urinals. And in the, our bathroom, um, we have a poster that of our sermon series we're going to be doing. It's out in the hall, too. I don't know where they put it in the ladies' restroom, if it's there or not. Um, I haven't been in there recently. Um, but... It's around, and there's these characters in the Bible that kind of have shown us how to live like Jesus. And so we're going to spend the next um, few few weeks with a few interruptions here and there looking at these characters, these Bible characters, these people who can teach us how we can live like Jesus and what it means to live like Jesus. So if you want to follow along today... Um, we're going to be looking at lots of texts all over the place. If you have your Bible, I invite you to just open it up, flip through the pages. I love hearing the sound of pages flipping up here in the front. It's a kind of a just a cool sounding. It's interaction. If you're not going to say amen or hallelujah or preach it, brother, I like to hear the pages turning at least. Um, or, or see the little glow of your screen from your app, whatever it is. But if you don't have a Bible or any of that, the scriptures are all on the screen today. But we're going to be going to Genesis to start with Genesis chapter 5, where you find an amazing portion of scripture um, that is genealogy. And I just wanted to say for the record, genealogy accounts are fun. Man, not an amen, not a that's right, not even a page turn, dead silence. Because, yeah, you're all looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, I feel that way from time to time. My, my, my mother will call me up, and I love my mother. Um, I don't always have the same appreciation for everything that she does, and she's gotten into the whole family tree business. Um, and she will call me up and delightfully tell me a story about some person she just found and maybe even if it's a good day, on a gravestone in some state that she happens to be traveling through and will tell me the story of how I'm related to this person. And I sit there and I do my best to enjoy it. But I'm glad I'm on the phone and she can't see the, my bored look. When I'm at home visiting and this happens, it's a lot harder to conceal it. Um, but I do my best because I like it and I love that she's interested. But as I get to understand the stories, it becomes even better. Because I've heard this rumor that while we were in Alaska, I didn't hear the rumor while we were in Alaska, but while we were in Alaska, I remembered the rumor. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Um, 
I remembered this rumor as a child of being told that I was related in some fashion, you know, fifth cousin, twice removed, or whatever that is, if you can even call that related, to the guy who bought Alaska. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I, asked, I called my mom up, and I actually asked her about genealogy. Um, and I was like, Mom, is it true? And she's like, well, we have lots of sewers in our grandparents. But we were in the uh, town of Seward this last week looking at a book um, about the guy who made the most savvy real estate purchase ever, you know, buying Alaska for pennies on the acre kind of a thing. Um, and thinking, man, how cool would it be to be like, yeah, this dude, that's my cousin, fifth removed or twice removed or whatever it is. You know, to have this connection. So genealogies can be fun. Each person has a story. And as we read through these things, it's important to remember that it's not just the things that we speed through to get to the next story, but it's something that we pause on and we think about how did this person affect and influence the story of the Bible. So each person has a story. There's also a rhythm in biblical genealogy. Um, in, in Chronicles and stuff, a lot of times it's written in that kind of poetry form where there's, you know, three, you know, just kind of names and it kind of has a rhythm to it. And this person begat this person. Well, in Genesis chapter 5, we see that rhythm. We see the rhythm of the line of Adam being talked about saying, and Adam begat Seth and Seth and then Adam lived for so many years and he died. Then Seth had a son, and it'd be really cool if I had rememorized all of these, but I haven't. Um, then Seth had a son, and he, Seth lived for so many years and he died, and then that person had a son, and he lived for that many years after that, and then he died. And then this person had a son, and then he lived for that many years and then he died, and then that guy had a son, and he lived for that many years and then he died. And then we get to Enoch. We get to Enoch, and that's where something changes. So we want to look at the genealogy in Genesis. There's three, there's some important things to remember about what genealogy does. And I'm really trying to create a passion for you. If you walk out of here with nothing else, leave with a passion of genealogy today. Um, It'll be good. Um, But genealogy does some things for us. With the rhythm of genealogy, it also is showing us the historicity. Is that a word? Sweet. All right, it is now. It's on the screen and on the internet. Um, it shows the historicity, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, of the account. So what the genealogy is trying to do is say that Adam to Seth to this person down the line, down to Enoch and Methuselah and down to Lamech and Noah and all of these people, it creates this historical account of the scriptures and says that the story is real. And so... There's, there's power in that genealogy. Um, it also shows the continuity of the story. It's not leaving out and saying, and then there was a thousand years where nobody had people, nobody had sons, or a thousand years of sons that we don't care about. It connects the whole story together. It shows the continuity. And it also shows the results of choices. Because we see different results of choices happening. And we see that in the genealogy of Adam through Seth, and also through Cain. So when we get to Enoch in the genealogy of Genesis, we've heard it so often that it doesn't slap us in the face like it should. 
But the rhythm of this man begat a son, had a son, and then he lived for so many years and then he died. And this person had a son, he lived and he died. This person had a son, he lived but did not die. He walked with God. And so we have Enoch. And Enoch is somebody that I'm guessing that a lot of us are aware of, that a lot of us have heard of the 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 Bible hero of Enoch. Um, it's interesting to note, make my clicker work, it's interesting to note that Enoch was the seventh man from Adam. Whenever you see certain numbers in the Bible, it just always kind of reaches out and grabs you. And when when you notice that, and when I was notice the fact that Enoch is the seventh, suddenly you get into the concept that seventh was such, such a huge number in in the Jewish culture, and this is even before the Jewish culture. But in in those times, in in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the number seven carries a lot of weight. Now I don't want to give it too much weight here, but it's really important to note. That Enoch being the seventh from Adam, seven representing completeness, wholeness, kind of, you know, in creation, it's the work is finished and he rests. The seventh from Adam is this hero of faith who walks with God and does it so closely that God says, I need you to be with me. And he does not experience death. If you flip over to Genesis chapter four, and this afternoon, want to read the exciting genealogy accounts in Genesis chapter 4, you will see the, the genealogy of Cain. And the seventh from Adam on Cain's side is this dude called Lamech. And he kind of represents the completeness of what sin does in our life. So we have in Enoch the completeness of a spiritual walk with God. And in contrasted with Lamech, Cain's grandson, as a spirit, as a, as a walk in sin and what it does. And Lamech brags to his wives. He is the first biblical person to be identified as being involved in polygamy and having more than one wife. And so he probably starts that trend. And he also brags to his wives about the fact that he killed someone and writes poetry about it and sings songs about the fact that he went and murdered somebody. And so we see in these two kind of contrasted things and the idea of being the seventh from Adam, we see the completeness of being connected in spiritualness and we see the completeness in being removed from God. And that's just a, a point. I don't want to put too much into that, but it's a, I think it's interesting to note. Enoch, also somebody who I believe that we all know about, that most people know who Enoch was, that he walked with God, is a hero of faith, and yet is referred to in the Bible four times. Once here in Genesis chapter 5, once in just a... Another genealogy account in First Chronicles. He then is found um, in Luke. So I'm going to probably list five times. In Luke, he's found in the genealogy that Luke gives of, of Jesus. 
So three of those accounts are genealogical records of Enoch. Then we have Hebrews. He's listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And then is referenced in the teeny tiny book of Jude as prophesying something. And yet all of us probably know Enoch and know that Enoch walked with God. But yet in the Bible, there is so little given about Enoch. But yet he is such a hero of faith because he walked with God and God wanted that walk to continue even till today. And so Enoch is today walking with God. And so this is the first character. As we're looking at living like Jesus, this is the first character we wanted to look at. And we wanted to study what it means to walk with God. What does it look like when we as Christians are living like Jesus and we are walking with God? The, the, the word walk is used, I think it was over 1,500 times throughout the Bible. It's, it's used a bunch and often it is used in that spiritual sense. It's, sometimes it's used literally, you know, they walk down the road. But most times, a lot of times it's used as the concept of being in a spiritual relationship. You know, we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, the fact that God walked in the garden, we see the spiritual relational connection there. We see all of these things about walking and being involved in in the walk with God. As I was thinking about how to talk about that, the verse in Micah chapter 6 verse 8 came to mind. He has shown you, O man... What is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Okay, now, I did that last little bit because last night when I was putting this in my PowerPoint, it might be the first time I realized this was phrased as a question. Um, I always read it as a statement because I sing it in the song I learned as a kid as a statement. You see it, do justly, love mercy, walk with God. You know, it's a statement. So I was blown away by the fact that it's a question. But don't fear not. It's not a question asking, do, should we do that? It's saying, God, has, has he not shown you to do this? It's like, come on, God has shown us to do this. And normally, and we will talk about the walk humbly with your God and the do justly, love mercy. What I love about those parts is that when we are looking at walking with Jesus, there are two points that are always looked at the horizontal relationship, to do justly to others. It's not to do justly to God. This is to do justly in our relations with others. To love mercy, it's to love mercy and be merciful, to love mercy like God loves mercy, to be merciful to others, and then to walk humbly with your God, the vertical. Two horizontal, relational, person-to-person Ideas of walking with God. The walk with God is always meant not to make us a spiritual person. It's meant to make us so we have a spiritual impact in the world. So that we can share the love of Jesus with others. One author um, unpacks the story of, of Enoch and really talks about the impact that he had while he was on this earth. And it's amazing to read and to think about the fact that this hero that so many people would have been known about, this guy who clearly was walking 
with God, was clearly in this relationship with God that was impactful, suddenly was just gone. And the hole that he left was immense. If we were to be suddenly gone, would we be leaving a hole at all? And that is why we want to learn to walk like Jesus, to live like Jesus. We want to be missed. We want to do enough so that if we're gone, people will say, whoa, something is different. But what I wanted to look at in this verse is the fact that he has shown you. And here is where I get to my fishing story. Um, lessons from Alaska. So, like, I, like I've mentioned, I had the privilege of spending two weeks in Alaska, and I recommend it for everyone. It was amazing. This is a picture, and I promise not to make this too show and tell. It really has a point. Um, this is a picture um, near the town of Whittier, um, a town that can only be accessed by a ship or through this one-way tunnel. Um, it's pretty cool. It's a one-way tunnel. On the top of the hour, the cars go one way. On the bottom of the hour, they come the other way. And then in between, trains also use that tunnel. Um, Two-and-a-half-mile-long tunnel that gets you through this town. Beautiful thing. But I wasn't there to just look at scenery. In fact, I was more there to fish. Whoops. Oh, no. I went too fast. That wasn't supposed to show up. Okay, here we go. Um, so we were there to fish. I went up with, like I said, there were seven other guys um, ages 13 to 70 or ages 12 to 70 up there and we were all fishing and we had been told constantly about when we were going up there by somebody who had been there before that the fishing was going to be one, fantastic and two, that the fish would be right at our feet. That we would not have to hardly cast at all, that we would be standing there and we would catch fish within probably 8 to 10 feet of where we were standing. And so we show up this place, um, and I would tell you where it is, but then I would have to do something bad because it's a secret. Um, so we showed up at this place on the Kenai River, I can tell you that much, um, where we had been told that the fish were going to be right at our feet. And so as I got there and I stood, and not that the people in the back can see this, but I'm in that picture. I'm um, the one on the right side that's next to last in the gray, not the bright yellow. Um, So I'm there fishing just to prove that I was there fishing. Um, And I was thinking about everything that I know about fishing from other places and how fish, first off, are lazy. Um, Nemo says Fish are friends, not food. Um, I say fish are lazy as all get out. And so they always look for the easiest path to get up the river. And so you're always looking. If you kind of look at this river, we're standing and there's this little kind of riffle thing we're standing in. And then there's this kind of smoother part, um, which would probably indicate that maybe the water's moving a little slower because then there's the rapid part. And so I'm thinking to myself... If I cast out into the rapids and bring my, my lure through the, the stiller water, the slightly deeper water, because fish are also scaredy cats. Um, and so they like, typically they like the slow, deeper water as they're moving up the river as much as they can. And so I was casting out and casting out 
and all the fools, are, okay, not all the fools, um, a couple of the fools in that picture were catching fish left and right. And it was starting to irritate me as I was not getting them. But my fishing um, experience, it always takes me a little while to learn a new river and a new technique and how it feels to be bouncing on the bottom and how the rocks feel versus how the fish feel and stuff. So I, I kind of am a slow learner when it comes to that. But we fished and fished and fished, and I did not catch a ton of fish that first or second day. Um, however, throughout the week, we tried a couple other spots, and I began to watch how the locals did it. I began to watch how they were doing and what their techniques were. And even though I was fishing with... Um, and I'm sorry, for those of you who don't like to fish, this is going to get really boring for a second. I apologize. Um, I was fishing with, like, casting gear, meaning um, it's meant to be able to cast from standing right here all the way to the back of the auditorium. You know, I'm able to throw a lure, you know, 100 feet or something. If I can just wing it right, you know, I can throw it out there quite a ways. And so that's what we're fishing with. And so that's the equipment I have. And I know that, man, if I can cast it out further, I'm going to catch the big fish that's out in the middle of the river. And so, you know, it's all about casting. And so I get there and I'm just thinking, man, if I cast a little further. And so I'm casting further. But as I begin to watch the locals do it, I see that they're using casting gear like mine, except for all they're doing is taking their rod and just flipping it over and flipping it over. And I'm like, that can't be doing it right because it's too shallow. We're only up to our shins in this water. Salmon can't be there. That's not where we're going to catch the fish. But I'm watching what's happening. And over the, over the week after fishing in another spot where the water had a little more clarity, I began to notice that, in fact, the fish really were right off the edge of the bank. We're about 10 feet off the bank. And the fish that we were targeting were tucked in behind the fish you could see. We were looking for silver salmon, um, is what it was called. Um, the sockeye salmon are coming up. And sockeye salmon, I don't have a picture of those. They're the ones that you see that have a beautiful red body. And a, they look like Christmas. Beautiful red body and a green face. Um, the head is green. The body is red. And I'll have to show you a picture of that um, sometime else. But that's we learned that right behind them is where the fish would be. So after a week of doing this and a week of learning and watching, we came back to this spot and I told myself, Tim, don't do what you think you need to do. Do what's been shown to you. And so I began to just almost use fly fishing techniques, pulling out a little line and flipping it, letting it go, and just fishing about 10 feet in front of me when I hooked into this beauty of a fish. And I caught that fish not because I was doing what I thought I had learned to do or what I thought I knew about fish. I was doing that because I had been watching and learning how the locals fished this, how others who were doing well were fishing it. I was watching and learning. Don't you just want to, man, I just want to stare at that thing. Man, it's a beauty. Good memories. So that's the silver salmon. Um, and I caught that fish literally probably seven feet in front of me is where I hooked into that fish. And then that's when the, the fun took off because it started running out all over the river and you had to fight him in. And that was a fantastic time. But I learned 
how to catch the fish. I learned how to do what I was trying to do. I learned how to fish the Kenai River by watching the locals do it, by being shown the way. God has shown us how to do it. God has shown us what is good through Jesus Christ. He didn't just leave us to find out how to go about this walk, about how to be a follower of him without giving us an example. He has shown us the way. He has shown us the way through Jesus Christ. We know what it means to follow Jesus because we have seen how Jesus lives. And so that walk, that journey with Jesus, that living like Jesus, we can only do that because, first off, it has been shown to us and we see how it's done and we see what it means to follow God. Just like I learned how to catch the fish, more fish, faster by when I truly did what I saw them doing and stopped trusting what I thought I knew and started trusting what the people who know what's going on, people who live there. When I started trusting that, things got better. So I want to take some time to look at three characteristics of the walk. I promise you, my sermon is now not just starting because I've mentioned my three points. Fear not, we're halfway through. But here is where we're getting to the three points about what it means to walk with God. First off, the walk with God is something that God invites us to. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The walk that God invites us on, the walk of faith, the walk that it is to live like Jesus, is something that we are first invited to come be a part of. This is where God has reached out and said, I have no requirements. I only require that you choose to walk with me, that you choose to respond to my call. Come to me. If we choose to respond to that call, he has promised that if we are weary. How many of you are weary this week? Marcus said that he'd had a rough week. I'm assuming he maybe was a little bit weary. That call is for you, Marcus. I'm not going to call out anybody else because you haven't admitted to it. But I could probably go through and call out each of us and say, are you weary? Where are you at? It is not that we have to feel. It is not that we have to be in a place where we say, okay, I'm good. I can walk with God. He is calling us as we are weary, as we are worn out, as we are being oppressed, as we are being tormented as Satan is attacking us. That is the weary that he is calling. He is saying, if you are tired of what you are experiencing, he's saying, come to me. I have peace that passes understanding. Are you burdened? Burdened, carrying the weight of your sins on you. Are you burdened with that, with the, with the guilt, the shame, the, the burden of knowing that you 
don't deserve what God is offering. He is calling you at that moment. He is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He is calling those of us who are tired and struggling under the weight of sin. To join the walk with God means that you just say, God, okay, we're walking. God, we are walking now. This verse, though, a lot of times we think that this is a New Testament kind of concept. But as we saw in Micah, we're told to walk humbly. This weary and burdened concept actually comes from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 20-something. I can't read that from here. Thank you, 28. Um, The speaker was in my way and my sight is bad. Um, I will fully satisfy the needs of those who are weary. It's not just I will give you a five-hour energy shot and you'll be good for another few minutes. It's I will fully satisfy the needs, not the wants. He's not going to give us everything that we think we want, but he's going to fully satisfy our needs of those who are weary. So if you are weary today, know that your needs will be fully satisfied when you walk with God and fully refresh the soul's I like that word, the souls, the innermost, the the essence of who I am will be fully refreshed from those who are faint. Are you burdened? Are you fainting under the weight? God has said he will fully refresh your soul if you choose to walk with him. So as we go on this walk, it is important to remember that God invites us to walk with him. Second part of the walk is God leads us. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This comes in a section of scripture where Paul, Paul is talking to the Romans about people who are maybe taking advantage of the mercies of God who are who are not truly understanding or allowing the change to happen in them. And so that's why it starts off, do you presume on the riches? Are you kind of taking advantage or living a presumptuous life knowing that God is merciful, that he's patient, that he has forbearance, that he's waiting? Are we taking advantage of that, forgetting the fact that God's kindness, that the mercy of God is what leads us to repentance. We do not have to repent to come to God. It has come to me if you are weary and burdened and full of sin and haven't quite joined the way. But God is saying, as you're walking this way, God is saying, hey, I'm going this way. Repent. Turn around. God's kindness is meant to encourage us, to make us want to make the choice to turn, to repent. And it is only after we have seen Jesus that that repentance happens in our life. I want to invite Mike and the music guys to come up because as I was reading this text, I was reminded of a song we've been singing here um, fairly regularly that has the phrase, your loving kindness leads me to repentance. 
And it's always interesting. I would like to say I always recognize scripture when I see it, but I don't. And I had no clue that that phrase came straight from scripture. I just, I hadn't made that connection yet. That your loving kindness, that the kindness of God is meant to turn us, is meant to turn us. That God's mercy is meant to invite us. It's meant to make us want to say, I see where I'm headed and it's not good. I want to turn. And so I thought, what better time to just take a moment to stop and sing that, to remind us of the beauty of Jesus and that his mercy is what leads us to repentance. It's his mercy that leads us to know that we need a change. And it's him that empowers us then to turn and accept that mercy. So I just want you to take a moment. If you don't know the song, listen as Mike and Ben sing. But join in singing your mercy and focus on the words. Your loving kindness leads us to repentance. Your mercy, your mercy, I stand before my to sing you save me you raise me you died so I could live no greater love than this your mercy your mercy your loving kind me to repentance your loving kindness it leads me to repentance really think about how God is leading you to a chance of God's goodness it draws you in to respond to his call to be on the walk, 
to want to repent and change. But not for us to force the change on ourselves. It's his loving kindness that says, Lord, I want to repent and I want to move on in life with you. I want to change and begin to walk with you. Knowing that God's kindness, Paul says, is meant to lead you to repentance. The walk with God that we're invited to is also led by God and he leads us to want to respond to that call. To respond to the call to say, yes, I accept your mercy and I will change my direction. But we only, the only reason we can change is because God empowers us on the walk. Isaiah, he gives power to the weak. He gives power to the weak. Are you feeling weak this morning? There is power for you. He gives strength to the powerless. Do you feel like you have no hope, no power left? He gives strength to you. Even youth will become weak and tired. Young men will fall in exhaustion. God empowers us. But here is the cool thing. God does not hand us the power of the brand new Lamborghini and say, here's the keys. Have fun. He doesn't hand us the power to the fighter jet that can go Mach 2 and say, knock yourself out. It's a kick in the pants. You're going to love it. He doesn't give us the power of nuclear codes. No, it's spread out to two people. I think it should be about five or six people at least, but whatever. Um, He doesn't give us the power and just then leave us. When God empowers us, he's not saying, here's my power, use it. God is saying, here's my power, and guess what? I come with it, and together we will go on this walk that turns you and leads you to repentance. This walk that will inspire others. This walk is empowered by God. God doesn't give us power expecting us to change ourselves. God gives us his power and then leads us to repent. Can you say amen to that? But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not go weary. They will walk and not faint. We are invited on a walk. In fact, the truth is that everybody in this world is on a walk. One walk is headed in a direction where your hands are bound and you are being led in bondage and slavery to some place that you don't want to go. The other walk is with Jesus, side by side, free to be there in his presence and in his power. We are called to be on a walk. We are called to live like Jesus. But the cool thing is, is that it's Jesus who will empower us to do that. My prayer is that we can be a church, be a people who are on this walk, who are, who are on a walk with God that leads us to joy and understanding, that leads us to peace, because God, the walk that God has called us on is not a somber 
is not a always serious thing. It is a walk that is filled with joy and amazing experiences. That is filled with power and is filled with excitement. And we long to be on that walk. And I trust and I hope that each of us wants to do that, knowing that it is not a somber walk. It is a walk where we're up on our feet saying, Jesus, thank you. I am so glad you have that you came. You've invited me as I when I was weary. You have saved me. You have lead me, led me to repent. Lord, I want to be on a walk with you. And as that awesome song says, I want it to be just a closer walk. I want it to be just a closer walk. Come on, now I want it to be just a closer walk. There we go. Do you want to be on that walk today? Do you want to be living like Jesus on this walk with him that will bring you joy? If that is your desire, I invite you to stand as we pray. Lord, we thank you that we have been invited. And not just by anybody, we've been invited by you. And so God, may we accept that invitation. We know that you have not bound us. We know that you don't force us to do anything. It is ours to choose. And today, Lord, as we leave this place, may we be on a walk with you that is closer and closer every day of our life. That we experience joy that causes somebody to say, how can you be so happy in this world that is so messed up? So, Lord, is my prayer that we will join that walk, that we will let you lead us. We ask these things in the saving name of Jesus.